0: It's a pleasure to be here and I want to thank I want to thank Jenny in particular for her vision and initiative in organizing this uh, It's not an easy time to be an academic administrator at any level in American higher education and one of the biggest challenges I think when you're in those sorts of positions is to find the energy to not just to not just cope and survive but actually try and shape what's going on. So um, I applaud Jenny for finding that energy. Uh, That I think is what the director for the Center for the Study of Higher Education should do in this state and in any state. And that's what any academic administrator should do. And that's my talk. The higher education we choose. I want to create or contribute to a sense of efficacy in times when we too often feel like we have no options. And, in fact, we're often told that we have no options. And as I travel around the country, people tell me about institutions they're in where the voices from on high say, you got to get on this train. It's out of the station. You're either on the train or you're on the track. And I say, well, that's sort of a limited conception of what the possibilities are. Let's just take that metaphor, on the train or on the track. On the track doesn't seem to be such a great place to be if the train's coming at you. (laughs) But what if I'm actually standing on the side of the track at the switch? And I'm switching where this train is going. What if I'm on the train throwing the engineer off? And I'm actually not kidding about that. What if I'm on the train pulling the emergency cord and saying, I think it's time we slowed down just a little bit. We're headed in the wrong direction. There's a lot of options beyond being on the train or on the track. And that's part of what I want to talk about today. So my thanks to all of you for coming, my academic work. Since (laughs) it looks like about 80% of the audience is either current or former students, which is a blast because what I miss most about this position I'm in is I'm not in classrooms. Um, I miss that. Uh, I love this place. I love this center. I love this university and the possibilities that we have, and that's what I want to speak to today. So, I'm an academic, so I got not only the the obligatory colon in the title. Let's see if I can figure this out. How does this work? There we go. I have a couple of other titles, so I'm like a moving target. One of these titles obviously speaks to my uh, work with Sheila Slaughter on academic capitalism, and the idea there is that we've been in the midst of this knowledge learning regime for three decades, and we have an opportunity to either accelerate as some people are calling for or to recalibrate what we're doing and it's going to become pretty clear, it should be pretty clear to you already, that I think we need to recalibrate. That just like laissez-faire capitalism in the broader economy collapsed, we're experiencing various forms of collapse in laissez-faire academic capitalism. To the extent that the chancellor a couple months ago of UC Berkeley, which is a pretty successful entrepreneurial public research university, essentially said, we can't do it. We can't make it. We need federal and state support to increase. Otherwise, you're going to lose this resource of the University of California. When UC Berkeley says we can't win only with the entrepreneurial game, it's probably a clue that the rest of us ought to get a clue and recognize that. And not give up trying to diversify our revenues, but also not just assume that we can't get any more out of the public. Wall Street didn't assume that. The Chancellor of UC Berkeley didn't assume it, and I don't see why we should assume it. The second sort of subtitle is uh, The Importance of an Independent, with independent underlined, faculty voice. So most of you in the audience know me. You know I kind of like exercising my voice. Uh, as I've been going around the country, it's interesting how consistent the theme is, from one campus to the next, whether it's the University of California, the University of Washington, Washington State, Bowling Green, Sinclair Community College, on and on and on, faculty want to have more of a voice in where their institutions are headed. They don't want to just be told, well, you know, we've got this consultation, we've got a Senate, we've got a committee. They want to actually have a voice and to be considered, have their ideas considered, and they want to have full access to information so that they can have meaningful input and so that they can exercise that voice. There isn't a faculty member I've run into, other than myself, who thinks they can run things. They don't have to be the great deciders, but they want to be consulted in a meaningful way because they do the work of the organization and they have a sense of its possibilities, which are simply not possible in these big institutions, and even in small ones, from any place in the center. You just can't know what the possibilities are public good mention in there is an important one too, Um, and I'll speak to to that a little bit later. Now, not only do I think it's important to have an independent faculty voice, I think it's important for that voice, if we're going to be in the center of this, to be in concert with organized voices of students, of staff, of community groups, and if you're not in a right-to-work state, of labor unions, even if you are in a right-to-work state with labor unions. Because students, as I'm going to point out nationally, are at the center of challenging where we're heading. So about a week ago, on March 4th, there was a National Day of Action. It really is centered in and started with students who organized in California, in New Jersey, in Michigan, in Ohio, in state after state after state to say enough. We need to save our public educational systems. They didn't wait, they didn't say we can't do this, they didn't say we just have to take it, they organized. And there are a variety of other groups, groups of lecturers in California who are unionized with the AFT, groups of faculty in the Cal State system who are unionized with the AUP and the NEA, faculty in the University of California system who are not unionized, faculty in community colleges, labor unions that are trying to redefine what is the future of public higher education, of the master plan, and of the UC system in California. And that has been taking place, it's beginning to take place around the country. So in my current position, I want to just briefly say a little bit about why I decided to take this position, and for a period of time, uh, let Ron have my money instead of me, which I know is a tough (laughs) trade-off. so hard not to have me here in my independent faculty voice raising hell uh, instead of my my meager salary. Um, Why did I decide to take this position and step out and step aside from, for a time, a job that I love and miss a lot? Uh, Well, the reason is I wanted to be uh, not only a voice in the desert, but I wanted to be part of a larger organization that's trying to reshape the course of higher education. And the AUP, which started about 95 years ago, we're coming up on our 100th anniversary in 2015, began as a group, a very small group of faculty who basically said enough to firings of faculty for statements that they were making for political positions that they were taking. One of the first investigations, the fourth one, was an outrageous situation in which a professor, Scott Nearing, at the University of Pennsylvania in the Wharton School, had done things like written a book called The Problem of Child Labor. Well, in the early 1900s, if you're an industrialist in the Northeast, child labor isn't a problem, it's a solution, it's a key to being efficient. It's very efficient to have kids working for you. Just like now, it's very efficient to exploit the labor force, force in a variety of ways. So this small group of and so the president of UPenn, fired, dismissed Scott Nearing because Scott Nearing was actually an assistant professor and in the summer was non-renewed. Wasn't fired, just not renewed. Kind of like what we do to thousands of contingent faculty today. We non-renew them. We don't fire them. Well, the AUP steps in and says, that's a firing. They fired this guy because of political positions that he was taking. It it wasn't just about child labor. It's about about the war, about a variety of other social justice issues. And the AUP defined that as a firing and a violation of academic freedom. And over the next several decades, it basically constructed what we take today at some level as the terms and conditions of professional work, of professorial work in a university. The idea that you have academic freedom, that you should be able to exercise that without being punished. And we have increasingly and recently come up with some language to ensure um, that universities are clear about that faculty speech about institutional matters should also be protected. So if you speak out about a transformation process, you should not be punished with sticks You should not be punished with a variety of actions. And actually I gather that the Faculty Senate here has built some language into the handbook about that. And we are pushing nationally. There are a couple of institutions. University of Minnesota we've worked with. Michigan is about to adopt some language. University of California is about to adopt some language. University of California came came to our attention last year in the fall that the Academic Freedom Subcommittee, Of the Academic Senate at the University of California at Berkeley, home of the free speech movement, had circulated a memo to Senate faculty, which is the tenure track faculty, saying take care what you say about what's going on with furloughs and the like. There's these series of court cases and what you say might be held against you, so take care. This is Berkeley That is not a university that I want to be a part of, where I have to take care about whether I'm going to speak out about where the institution is headed. So we have this campaign that we've rolled out, this sort of lead report, uh, and the the chair of that report is the former president of the University of Virginia, Bob O'Neill, who's a First Amendment scholar and has a center on academic freedom at the University of Virginia. And we are working, as I said, with institutions around the country to build into handbooks and contracts, if it's a unionized place, the idea that we have the right to speak out. We don't have the right to speak out, we have the responsibility to speak out. And I know that's been a problem in this place. So, the second thing I want to say about speaking out is, everything is negotiable. And that's what students have taught us historically about American higher education. Whether in the 60s with the anti-war movement, whether subsequently with Students Against Sweatshops, whether with divestment or what have you, stuff is more negotiable than anyone wants to acknowledge. And when someone tells you that the train's on the track and you better get on that train, that's a first bluff and, and sort of bet that that's what's going to happen. And my view is it's our responsibility to offer a counteroffer. And say, not yet, maybe. And we need to think about this. Maybe some of your ideas aren't so great. Um, why I took this job? A couple of years ago at the convocation of the, of the College of Education, uh, I had the privilege of, of being the faculty speaker. And to close out that convocation, I read a little passage from Seamus Haney's Cure at Troy. Seamus Haney's a poet. So I'm just going to read the abridged version here. Human beings suffer. They torture one another. They get hurt and get hard. No poem or play or song can fully right a wrong inflicted or endured. History says don't hope on this side of the grave. But then... Once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history can rhyme. My feeling is if hope and history are going to rhyme, we've got to make that happen in an organized way. And so that's essentially why I took this position. I want to be part nationally of trying to make hope and history rhyme in a place where currently they are not rhyming at all. They are discordance to the extreme. Now I know in this colloquium, my guess is, my educated guess is, having read some things, is there's a lot of discussion about constraint. I'm not going to deny that we face difficult economic times. It would be foolish to deny that. But what I want to suggest is another kind of constraint that we suffer from, and that is a constraint of imagination and a constraint of political will. Now, I am a relentlessly optimistic person, I have been told, but I'm not naïve. And on the basis of what I've seen around the country, I want to kind of combine what I'm observing going on in campuses and fomenting, frankly, uh, from my vantage point as general secretary of the AUP, more secretary than general, um, and what I know and believe about this place and its possibilities. So, as I said, I know you've heard a lot about constraint, economic constraint by way of the state's economy and budget. I just want to point out, as a beginning point, of course, the state's budget is not the university's budget. And one of the results of us having been entrepreneurial for several decades is that a minor portion, significant but minor portion, of our budget comes from state appropriations. Generally, in research universities, less than 25 percent. In many places, less than 10%. I Just at the University of Washington, it's 9% of their overall budget. So let me just sort of map this out, because we did a lot of discussion about the larger economy in the state, um, and let me analogize it to someone having five or six jobs, because we have multiple revenue streams in universities. So on my one job, I'm taking a 10, 15, you name it, 20% hit. But that job accounts for about 20% of my income. On most of my other jobs, I'm getting an increase. So when I'm at a university that's getting a 10% cut on 9% of its budget, and then I ask, and tuition I gather is going up, yeah, about 10%. How much of your budget is that? About 23%. Sounds to me like you might not be totally in a crisis situation. And I think in American higher education, we are too quick to reason from the condition of the state and the condition of our neighbors who are being laid off to the condition of the university. They are two different entities. So we are far from flush in monies. We don't have as as much in the way of monies as we would like in order to do what we want to do, but we are also a long ways from being broke. And to consistently talk as if we are is just wrong. And if you are in any other part of this state where people are really being fundamentally crushed, and you come on this campus, it sounds a little odd for someone on this kind of a campus, or if I'm at the University of California, for people to talk as if they're broke. They're just not. So I want to consider a different type of constraint, which is, as I said, a constraint of imagination and of political will. So as a university, we are, in our research and teaching, more about hope than about constraint. We're not just passive victims of circumstance. We play a role in making history, and we can choose to make really tough, really creative choices, because most of the tough choices that we get confronted with aren't actually tough choices at all. In fact, most institutions are pursuing them. So apparently they aren't all that tough or creative. We need to get beyond, and here's the bullet, a culture of complaint about the state. We are unappreciated, the story goes, by uneducated, and that's putting it nicely as the story goes, state legislators. I'm not going to be someone who's going to stand up here and defend um, the educational level or brilliance of state legislators but I will say they're the people who are allocating a good portion of money to us, a relatively, certainly less than 40% portion, but a significant portion to us. And part of our role is to educate. We're educators. Part of our role as citizens is to leverage, to organize, to pressure, and to support those governors and state legislators who actually at some point stand up and say, you know what, what we've got here isn't just an efficiency problem, we got a revenue problem. So even in this state, which was wringing its hands, I know, when Janet Napolitano went to DC, even the current governor sees the need for some sort of increase in revenues. And that is happening around the country. We need to be part of telling that story, even as we continue to pursue other revenue streams, we need to be telling the story that if the state wants services, it needs to pay. We can't really compromise on that, otherwise it becomes pretty much a self-fulfilling prophecy. And you know, I sat on speedback for several years, and I would listen to the president and the provost talk about They'd gone up there, they'd gotten bloodied and beaten up and how terrible it was. And I just couldn't I just couldn't get the violin going because that's part of the job. It's like a faculty member saying, oh, the students are so stupid. They're just uneducable. I just can't work with them. I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for that either. It's part of our job. If they don't get it, then we got to do something different by way of educating them. Unless we're going to take the position, which I think is a bad position to take, that they're uneducable. Several years ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, there was a push for post-tenure review in this state, kind of following something that had happened in California. And the three academic councils of the three public universities basically took this proposition of, these folks are educated, and went to the regents and essentially educated them on what tenure is about, what is the process like, and brought them around people are educable. We're educators. We're in an institution that has this foundational belief, people are educable. So I'm really not interested in people saying we can't, we can't pursue that anymore. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. So we need to imagine and initiate a different relationship with the state. Because what happens is, because we are at some level unappreciated, we like to spend our time in other venues, and perceiving ourselves as chasing world-class opportunities with people who are much more pleasant to hang around with. And that means if I'm at the state level, I begin to wonder, well, if you're so oriented to these other constituencies, why should we care about you? It becomes this vicious cycle and the self-fulfilling prophecy, and I think we need to break that and pose ourselves in a different relationship to the state, not just and I'm not just talking about administrators here, faculty are the same way. Faculty talk about state legislatures and states in the same way. And I think we need to rethink our relationship. I think we also have to um, get over a culture of constraint about internal resources. We are unsupported by states with insufficient resources, yes, granted. But let me just offer another proposition. There is a lot of money in this institution being allocated every year and we're making choices about where it goes. We make choices about whether to hire another assistant coach. We make choices about whether to build another medical school campus. We make choices about whether to take on the encumbered debt that's gonna accompany, uh, because we'll have to pay for continued upkeep of the building, the construction of new buildings. We make choices in the allocation of our resources. We have a lot of resources that we allocate, We have a lot of state money, and we ought to be thinking, in my view, about the ways in which those choices could be enriching the communities in which we're situated. And I'm coming back here to our relationship, not just to the state, but to the communities in which we we are situated. So instead of just bitching that they don't support us in the manner to which we would like to become accustomed when we ignore them, we might want to imagine different choices in how we allocate our resources internally, In order to address the needs of our surrounding communities. Because the fact of the matter is, not only here, but in a variety of communities surrounding public universities nationally, there are a lot of unhappy constituents wondering where is the university in this neighborhood? Third, a culture of inevitability, and of complicity and resignation, and as I said earlier, even fear. So we can extrapolate these linear trend lines that have become, as I said, self-fulfilling prophecies, or we can say it might be the fact that we're not at the beginning of a new normal. We're at the end of 30 years of academic capitalism, and we need to recalibrate. We need to re-feature in some ways the public in our public higher education, not giving up the entrepreneurial work that we do. I understand that. I get NSF grants. I continue to get those grants even in this position. I understand the need to generate independent revenues. I don't understand giving up on pushing with the state that we're a public entity that needs public support. I think that's a foolish position to take. So we need to reimagine a rebalancing of academic capitalism. That, as I said, allows for a continued diversification of revenues, but doesn't forget our base. Because I think what has happened to a lot of public higher education recently is that we have forgotten our base. One of the groups that is really central in articulating these views nationally is, as I said, students in concert with students. So I was or in concert with faculty. So I was just, and community groups. So I was just on a panel at the University of Illinois Chicago. And I think this sort of points to the importance of faculty taking the lead, putting things on the table that haven't been on the table. I don't know how many of you have been following the University of Illinois. The University of Illinois announced um, furloughs because the state had not been allocating the revenues that were due the University of Illinois. So, um, We did an analysis one of the leaders who's an accountant and myself did an analysis of the budget of the University of Illinois and said, gee, it seems to us like there are several options other than furloughs. Even if you furlough faculty, you might take the option that since the state is eventually going to come through with this money, and almost certainty, and in fact something that's embedded in the 2010 budget put together by the administrators of the U of I system, Whatever monies are taken from faculty and staff should be reimbursed when that money comes back. If we got a short-term problem on this cash flow, we ought to have a solution that reimburses the people who've been furloughed. That wasn't on the table. We got a response, we can get back to to resignation and, and lack of an independent voice. We got a response from the systems senate saying, well, um, you know, there's, it's more complicated than you think, but actually we'll grant you that A, that is a possibility that we ought to pursue, and B, we think that there should be open uh, records of the finances of the University of Illinois, and that the faculty should have a stronger voice in identifying priorities for cuts. That conversation in Illinois now has sort of Mushrooms to the point where we're in a organizing campaign for a union at the University of Illinois, Chicago in a joint effort with the AFT. That Effort was sort of triggered by this furlough issue, but really what underlay it was much more than that. It was a sense, how many of you know the University of Illinois, Chicago? Okay, so it used to be Chicago Circle, right? It's an urban university. A lot of the faculty that we're talking to there are really upset about the direction that that university is taking. So, as I said, I was there on Monday, got a little banner around the base of its arts and sciences building, world-class university in a world-class city. Um, There's a lot of concern on the part of faculty that in the pursuit of world-class status, They're moving away from the students and the communities that historically have been part of the identity of this urban research university. And it's it's been a very successful university, in terms of being entrepreneurial. But at the same time, the faculty are very concerned that the tuition is rising to a level that a lot of the local students can't afford it. They're chasing out-of-state students in the kinds of programs that they're setting up in the medical center. It's got a huge medical center. They are focusing more on constituencies and types of medicine that have to do with some populations than others. So there's a sense that we're losing what we're about. So what has happened in this conversation about furloughs is it's transformed into a conversation not about what faculty and students and staff and community groups are against. It's turned into what they're for. They're for bringing the idea of public back into a public research university. And they are sponsoring a piece of legislation that calls for an increase in taxes in Illinois. They, uh, at the day I was at, which is sort of a kickoff event for what will almost certainly be a year-long series of efforts to lobby the legislature and lobby the community, they had report backs on faculty members and department heads who had gone and met with aldermen, state senators, state assembly people, speaking to them about the hurt that UIC was experiencing and that the University of Illinois generally was experiencing, and that public education generally, not just higher education, but K-12. through Because this, this is a continuum. And this coalition of groups spans the educational system and extends beyond it. So these folks are sort of not taking this sitting down. They're saying, we actually have an opportunity to organize a movement to challenge the direction that we're taking. And that is not an unusual thing nationally, because from state to state, whether it's Illinois or California, where we're in the midst of a whole series of actions related to the master plan, related to the future of the UC system, a variety of groups, a variety of coalitions, Are working to redefine what it means to be public when you're in public higher education. How am I doing time-wise? So, okay, so, all right, great. So let me race a little faster. So what's the national pattern? The national pattern is, and I know several speakers have spoken to this, I want to put it in a context of in talking about state funding, that the choices we make now will determine whether universities continue to become more socially exclusive and, in some cases, less meritocratic, or whether they begin to become more socially inclusive and relatively more meritocratic. Because if price becomes what forces people to opt out, that's not merit. And that's what we're seeing nationally. The data is overwhelming in various types of institutions. For three decades, we've shifted the burden from the state to the student. I think people have spoken to you about that. I think we should conceptualize that as a regressive excise tax on higher education. Premised on the idea, as I know Ron and others in speaking to this group have said, that higher education is a private good. At the same time, we've shifted from grants to loans. And during the same time, universities have focused increasingly on increasing net tuition revenue. Which oftentimes takes them away from some of the populations that we've been trying to serve. There's a report that came out uh, a couple of years ago, put out by the Education Trust. It is, in, the title sort of tells it all. It's an analysis of public research universities. It analyzes over time for each public uh, research flagship university in each state in the country the extent to which they have increased access for underrepresented populations and increased access for low-income students. The index is different than the index we use when we report that we're getting more and more diverse. The index has to do with the relationship between our student numbers and students in the public schools. The index for uh, low-income students is Pell Grant recipients. Maybe the University of California is the best example that Berkeley actually enrolls a very significant number of Pell Grant recipients because they have a lot of transfer students from the community colleges and the Cal State. It's somewhere around 30 percent, but the current discussions in California are at a, at a decision point. Is California going to do less of that transfer work, educate fewer California students, and chase more out-of-state students so that they can get the higher tuition revenues from that? That's a fundamental choice about whether they're going to be an engine of inequality or an engine that reduces inequality. So what we see nationally is public universities pursuing better students and wealthier students to maximize their prestige and their net tuition revenue. Strategic enrollment management, and it, these, it's not that people who are doing this are evil human beings, it's that as we get reduced shares from the state we start chasing another revenue stream which is students and out-of-state students pay more than in-state students. There's another national pattern, Um, and I'm going to suggest, as the the heading indicates, that we're in the midst of unbridled academic capitalism that is out of balance, and that it's not just me or a few other people saying it's time to recalibrate. It's some academic administrators. So Bergenot, as the UC Berkeley uh, chancellor, came out, as I said, with an op-ed piece. Was in the Washington Post saying, we need to invest publicly in our elite research universities. Now, you know, the chancellors at Irvine and Riverside were like, yeah, like Berkeley needs more money. But as I said, when that Chancellor of Berkeley says, we can't continue to play only the entrepreneurial game. The state is starving and killing us. It might suggest to us that more of us should be playing that card. It's true also of some governors. Governor in the state of Michigan has built in, a little bit like what the governor here is trying to do, built in an increase in the sales tax, which I understand is regressive, but nevertheless at least it's a tax to generate some revenue, uh, in order to come up with a budget that will not slash higher education in Michigan. There are some trustees. The head of the Board of Trustees in Ohio, uh, who's formerly a state legislator on the Appropriations Committee, has pushed to increase state appropriations and hold the line on tuition, because as he said, the future of Ohio lies in educating another several hundred thousand citizens of Ohio to the baccalaureate level. That's our future. So there are some voices. Oregon just passed two tax measures at the end of January, one on business, one on the top two or 3% of um, household income because they didn't, they wanted to reduce the slashing of higher education and of education generally in Oregon. So it's not impossible. You aren't the only voice if you make this case. You're actually part of a rising group of people who are recognizing if you want public services, you need to pay for them. We can't simply cut our way out of this problem, as President Shelton said to this group, I believe. So who is most aggressively carrying out, carrying this standard, carrying this sort of message about public reinvestment? It really is these coalitions of students, of staff, of faculty, and of community groups. And I think that's why it's up to us to choose to articulate a different vision of what public higher education can be. It's a lot harder as an individual president to go up and say, well how about if you raise taxes? Then if you're part of a large coalition of people including people in the community are saying, we don't want you to savage our public education. So, as I say, University of California, University of Illinois, Chicago is a statewide effort in New Jersey, and and I could give other examples as well. Internal resource allocation. So, we are, as I said earlier, allocating monies, and the choices we make now will determine whether universities will continue on the margins, on balance, to increasingly move monies towards administrative, non-academic personnel. In activities or whether good spell check, we began to make the apparently really tough choice of moving more monies on balance to the core academic mission. So the second bullet, three decades have seen quite a differential growth in full-time positions. And remarkably those patterns continue in many institutions through the present. So at the University of Illinois, their proposed 2010 budget, in spite of the fact that they're furloughing people, they are proposing in their budget increases in administrative costs. For three decades we've also been disinvesting in engaging faculty. We've doubled the share of part-time faculty to about 48 percent. We're hiring More non-tenure-track full-time faculty, about 19% of faculty now nationally. So two-thirds of the faculty are off the tenure track. 34% of new hires are off the track. The age profile of faculty nationally is basically me. 50s, white, male. About a quarter are within five to ten years of retirement. The big planning these places ought to be doing, and there's a few places that are doing it, but not many. The big planning that these places ought to be doing isn't about jerking around academic programs and doing shotgun marriages. It should be about planning for transitioning from a faculty that is largely over 50 and ready to retire to a younger faculty. What is our plan for doing that, particularly in a place where we have a lot of science faculty and to start up a new lab scientist costs just a little bit of money. We ought to be planning for that. Instead of just basically ad hoc saying, well, you lose a line, we're not going to refill it. The incentive there is for people to sit at their desks forever and die in their chairs. <laughs> not really good strategic planning. Call me foolish, I just don't think that makes a whole lot of sense. Program restructuring. We've done a little bit of that here, haven't we? We all feel more efficient. We all feel we're producing a lot better quality output. We all feel like we spent a hell of a lot of time, probably. The storyline on program reorganization is so clear nationally. A, you don't save a whole lot of money. Because to save money, you have to shoot people. And institute, we're not GM. We're not Chrysler. We're not Ford. We don't lay off 10,000 people at a time. We don't hack off whole divisions. We go through these processes and end up with very marginal savings, if we end up with savings at all. Worse though, is that we engage in planning processes that end up oftentimes cutting programs that are actually strong programs. So there's some interesting work nationally done on who gets cut. The programs that are most at risk are small, they're programs that don't fit, so historically in this place, if you're library and information science, and you're in the, in the SBS college, now faculty, whatever the hell it's now called, how do you fit? So when those sociologists are sitting around, and those psychologists are sitting around saying, do we really need library and information science in, in SBS?" Let's offer them up as a sacrifice. So what you get is, instead of decision-making, and the guy who's done a lot of good research on this is Peter Eckel, who actually trains provosts for the American Council on Education. The storyline is that you would think you would come up with some set criteria, there would be a rational analysis, there is, there is, and then you think the decisions would be driven by the data. But instead, the decisions are driven by what can you actually do? who can you get away with cutting? What can you get away with cutting? And we often, even on that, sort of miscalculate. Um, I think we should be challenging the goal that we need steeples of excellence. So about 10 years ago, I did some uh, research at public research universities, talking about tight financial times. And uh, one of the department heads there who I was interviewing was the Department of Computer Science. And there was some talk on the campus that um, maybe they ought to just focus on a few really significant, powerful schools and kind of turn everything else around them into support departments. Well, this guy said, and he's very entrepreneurial, he said, the problem is it's not good to be the strong branch of a weak tree. We need in computer science a good physics department. We need a really strong math department. We need a really good history department. We need a really good psychology department. This is not a matter of being able to build up a few steeples and sort of starving the rest. That's not what makes a first-rate university. Um, we can make the same analysis, if I had more time, on the non-academic side of the house. Who gets cut in student affairs and who gets upside? The national pattern is pretty clear. If you're in outreach, what do you think happens? You're already relatively unsupported. You're more likely to get cut than if you're in enrollment management. We're making choices internally about how we're gonna move our monies. And those choices say something about what our vision is of what we are as a university. And we're complicit in those patterns. So we're in this academic survival show. We're often willing to throw out our colleagues. We throw them under the bus, we throw them off the island, we throw them out of the boat. The most recent conversation I was part of here before I left was one of my colleagues reminded us that the last round of cuts we did, one of his colleagues said to him, I think what we need to do is shoot the wounded. I don't know about you, but I think that's kind of a undesirable morality for a university to articulate, even privately. We're complicit in this. We're really fast to say, well, yeah, let's move to quality because they're not as strong as we are. The question before us is whether we focus, in my view, on feeding our status-driven aspirations for higher rankings. We're going to become a number 10 public research university. Um, and hoped for revenues. We engage in a lot of ventures hoping to generate revenues. A lot of those ventures don't work out and are actually net losses. Med school, anybody? Uh, Or we begin to emphasize more engaging and enriching the communities in which we're situated. How about a med school in Phoenix that was focused on Phoenix and health in Phoenix? more than on sort of biotechnology, high-tech medicine, and the like. How about if we thought about that? If we expect more public support, we need to rebalance and shift our focus in order to recapture and refeature our publicness and our public spirit. And I think part of that has to do, we should be getting back to our place. So this is a little, we're doing a lot of benchmarking, but we're basically like sheep imitating other institutions. Not so much to me whether we do this or that, but the extent to which we emphasize this or that over a period of time and the extent to which we begin to rebalance what we're doing. I think we're on an unsustainable path. I think we need to take the lead. I think the path we're on is a failure of imagination about what a university in the borderlands of Southern Arizona could be. Um, And I think we need to take the lead together. Let me just give you a couple thoughts about Um, where I think we can go. To me, one of the attractive things about a college of education and about the Center for the Study of Higher Education in the community we're in is that you can actually conceive of changing the structure of opportunity, of educational opportunity for the Tucson population. So their faculty members, Cecilia Rios Aguilar and our, and Regina D'Amen and our uh, in our center and people within, I don't even know the new acronyms, the former LRC, um, people throughout the College of Education who are engaged in trying to lift up the student population in Tucson. And it's a sizable, it's a small enough city that that's actually a doable project. It's not doable if the College of Education takes disproportionate cuts. The chief college, as Ron has nicely articulated, we do more bang for the state bucks than most or any other college in the institution, but we get gouged. The other sort of thing I would say about just a university in southern Arizona is that it's conceivable that we could reshape the borderland. That we could be part of, and there are programs on the margins that are doing, but that's not our central identity. Our central identity has to do with these abstract rankings and aspirations about becoming a top 10 place, rather than about changing the place that we're in. And in the process, changing our relationship to the state, to the communities that we could be much better serving, And that we repeatedly find ways to infuriate, like by collapsing cultural centers and not recognizing what this means to the communities that we're trying to serve. Maybe because we conceive of those communities as poor communities only, instead of recognizing that there's actually a lot of political strength and economic wealth in those communities, which could benefit us when we go to a state legislature. could benefit us as donors, but we don't tap into that because we don't see those communities. We're too busy looking to be world-class, which in this environment means China and the Middle East. Somehow it doesn't mean South Tucson, the borderlands, Mexico. So I think we have the capacity as an institution because of the manageability of our size the community, both the Tucson community and the Arizona community, we have the capacity, actually, to fundamentally change the places in which we're situated. But if we're going to do that, we have to focus on the places in which we're situated. And on the margins, we have to start moving monies not away from those populations and communities, but towards them. And I think that would be actually a creative choice. Apparently, it's an extremely tough choice, because so few institutions are actually doing that. That's the argument at University of Illinois Chicago, and that's an argument I would make here. So I think I will stop with that. Thanks for your attention.